Hello and welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. I've got Devin with me today and we are here to discuss some new drones, some Micro Four Thirds news, some Sony cameras because uh, I want Devin's input on that. But first, Devin, it's been almost three weeks since you've been on a show. What have you been up to, man? <laughs> um, oh, man, too much. Uh, last weekend I was on a, a set. Um, that was fun. Little indie set, little indie project, uh, for someone here in the LA area. And it was, it, the first was a 12 hour day, which is pretty good on a sound stage. Um, I didn't realize that they have these, they've got entire sound stages that have pre-built, uh, operating rooms, uh, police headquarters, oh, bedrooms, yeah. offices, yeah, sweet, all man. that kind of stuff. All the props, all the C stands, all the usual stuff that you need, um, as well as, you know, a couple of lights and like everything you need in the production for one cost, you can get a day. I think this location was like maybe 750 for a day. So you get everything you need. Um, so working on that set, it was fun. Uh, tons of PAs, tons of new faces, tons of people to meet. And then um, the next day was an on-location thing that, of course, you know how it goes. It, it wasn't 12 hours. It went to 15 hours for that day. So uh, still, you know, a little tired from Sunday, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, I've been really enjoying it. Was it really only $750 a day for the rental? Yeah, normally they say on their websites a thousand. They currently have an offer that's seven hundred fifty, and if you have a crew less than twelve, they'll bring it down to five hundred. Wow, that's really freaking affordable. I, I, I'm surprised yeah. by that. Uh, <laughs> last time I had to rent a soundstage, I, I want to say it was like two or three grand a day or better, and uh, that's not including sure. like lights and stuff. Well, and this this one that they kind of like threw it off as like, hey, we have a couple of lights if you want. They probably had about four one by one LED panels. Uh, no battery options. They did include, like, I think, like, 16 radios, which was a pretty good deal. Uh, but minus the C-stands, like, I started pulling out uh, flags and scrims and everything else. All of it was torn. Like, <laughs> I, I, I had to put uh, two giant two-by-twos together uh, to try to cover up all the holes that they had in them to get a consistent, <laughs> like, uh, scrim for one of the lights. So it's uh, it, it's not exactly like everything was great quality. You, sometimes you get what you pay for. But at least the location was super cheap and big, and there was soundproofing on the roof, so it wasn't terrible. What were you guys shooting on? Uh, we were shooting on the Blackmagic uh, 2.5K, that uh, old cinema camera, uh, which... You know, the image looks great. Bit of a workhorse. Of course, we did the audio separately on a four-track Tascam unit. But um, I had a lot of fun working with that camera. No problems, no overheating issues. It's a little bit bigger, um, and I probably would have preferred a Micro Four Thirds mount on it instead of an EF mount, But because then I could use a speed booster and other goodies with that camera. Uh, but still, with its 2X crop or whatever, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like using the pocket camera, which we they use my pocket camera as a B camera and an insert camera. And that guy's really hard to get wide on when you're trying to get that cinematic image. So it really only works for like close-up and detail shots. You got to get that uh, 8mm f1.8. On my end, <laughs> guys, right. uh, nothing exciting. You just saw me a couple days ago with Mitch. So between there and now, uh, editing, and uh, I was just telling Devin, doing some house hunting uh, here coming up, uh, trying to find a bigger location. Yet again, I love I love moving places. It's just amazing to do that all the time. But on that note, I think it's probably time for the news. Oh, I'm glad. 
for the news. I can't even hit the buttons right today. First up on the list here is actually interesting to me and sort of interesting in general. This is a micro four-thirds system uh, drone fold-up system from Power Vision, uh, very similar to what we see from DJI. This guy has a 29.5-minute fly time. It is pretty similar. It has all the sensors for tracking distance, uh, collision avoidance, and so on. No word yet on pricing, but it does have a micro four-thirds gimbal setup on that, and I think they might actually be planning on selling it separately as well, similar to the Osmo. What do you think about this, Devin? I, especially now that we're starting to see micro four-thirds as sort of a throw-in as an extra for these drones. You know, it's... I, th- I think it's uh, it. It's, I'm happy to see it because it means the Micro Four Thirds system is alive and well. Because I've got several lenses invested in it, so of course I'm happy to see more people using it. Uh, while it does seem to be a bit more compact, I mean this almost seems just not compact when you compare to uh, GoPro's uh, latest offering that you guys covered last week, as well as what uh, the DJI Maverick or Mavic. Uh, that came out so but having interchangeable lenses is something that that doesn't have so this isn't the first time we've seen it uh the thing is there's no word on the pricing um it could come in at a very good price it seems to have obstacle avoidance um and for the most part it seems pretty compact but once again i feel like any company um can come out with something that looks like a customized drone um, but then you got to ask yourself the support system behind it. How good is the software? Because uh, throwing some gimbals together and some, uh, uh, so I mean, some motors together and some drivers for it and a control board, they're all kind of the same. And even when you add obstacle avoidance and everything else, a lot of these are off-the-shelf components soldered together. The question is, is like, what's the firmware like and what's the software like to actually run this thing? So. I'm excited to see more in the space because uh, the space has been innovating really hard, and I'd love to see it go even further. And I'm really impressed with that flight time that they're claiming. Uh, but once again, until you get it in your hands and people start seeing, like, is this like a DJI, really easy to fly? You can kind of do it one-handed. Um, or is this something where uh, it randomly flies away on you? <laughs> uh, like That's still a concern. You throw all these control systems in there and something doesn't work right and suddenly it thinks that something is running towards it and it may like react by backing away from it and then it just flies away because it doesn't know what it's doing. Um, so that's when it comes to kind of a unheard company like that, that's what I want to see is how it's actually controlled and what the software is like because I feel like that's the make or break. Um, these are pretty complicated devices, especially as cameras, and being able to use them efficiently and quickly is the most important part of set. Um, actually, we had a drone on the shoot we went on this weekend, and unfortunately, the person flying it, it was their second time flying it, and two seconds into the shot, they ran it into a tree, and <laughs> we didn't have any extra propellers, so that ended that shot. So like I said... Well, one of the things that well, differentiates software- this... Oh, go ahead, Devin. Sorry, you're cutting out pretty bad today. Yeah. So uh, finding uh, the software and that ease of use becomes one of the most important things in using this in a production. (laughs) Okay, I didn't catch the last bit there, but um, I will tell you that the uh, three-axis section of the DJI, which is this guy right here, will set you back about... $3,000 
3,900, and that's with the raw extension that allows you to record to SSDs. Uh, this unit does not. It uh, records internally a 60-meg codec. So that might be part of the price savings, hopefully, on this guy. And maybe if it's under three or $4,000, it uh, might be competitive with the... 6,000 almost uh, price of the X5R from DJI. Uh, moving on down the line here, and that is funny that he crashed it into a tree first thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, here's here's the thing. Um, no one no one knew that it was uh, the pilot's second time flying a drone. And so uh, people were kind of impressed because the first thing it did was, like, kind of go up high and then fly straight through a couple of power lines without touching them. What? Like, whoa, what is what is going on? Someone's trying to show off here, but it was just luck. <laughs> and then when the shot got set up, um, it followed the car and went straight into the tree, unfortunately. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, the, drone, the DJI drone still survived. It just had a chip propeller, and we had no uh, extra propellers on standby. So what, that ended that. One of the things to think think about if you're looking at the uh, the latest offering the Maverick and uh, uh, whatever GoPro's label is uh, both of those are priced at about $1000, right? Well, you can go buy yes. a Phantom uh, Mark IV used for about 800 to $1000. And, and that's got a great camera yeah, on it. Yeah, it's got a great camera on it. It's pretty much everything you would want out of a drone, and it, it's very competitive, especially compared to these offerings. Uh, a better, I think, a better image quality from the early reviews mm -hmm. of the Maverick to the Phantom. So, you know, why wouldn't you get a used Phantom? I, I don't really know. I think, yeah, I think most people should definitely get the... Uh, if, if, if size isn't a concern for a lot of people, portability is, like, the most important thing. Uh, but from what I've seen, the Mavic is really soft. It's it's different if, hey, I'm just, like, out with my friends shooting. This is a toy. This is just fun for me. Uh, I go hiking a lot, and I want to get that aerial footage. Then great. You know, it's perfect for that. But if your, like, top concern is image quality then something like these ones with micro four-third lens mounts or something like the Phantom 4 still has brilliant 4K footage. And I imagine because the GoPro camera is using a GoPro 5, that should have some brilliant oh, footage yeah. as well. And it's a Karma. Thank you, chat room, for uh, refreshing that's, me. That's right. I wasn't expecting karma. to talk about that, so I didn't add it to the notes. And there's so many coming out now that it's kind of hard to keep track of all the names. Uh, the next thing on the list here, and this is actually sort of interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with this as an app, uh, but uh, Prisma, I, I think it's Prisma. I'm going to, I'm just going to go with Prisma. Uh, they're a company that uses AI to analyze uh, famous artists and art pieces. And then they use that AI to image, analyze, an actual photo and then recreate the photo using one of the styles of art that the AI has worked on. Uh, this has previously only been available for photos, uh, but they recently released an update that will allow for video as well. Uh, basically, you'll load your video up, the AI will analyze it and then kick out uh, some images and video to go along with that. This is currently only available for the iPhone, but uh, it should be coming soon for Android devices. I'm checking the link here, and I actually screwed this up, Devin. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to your dig account. Yeah, Come on, dude. What am I doing wrong here? <laughs> what do you think about, first of all, this is a, a photo proposition. Have you used this at all? No. Um, it's, it's like a filter system, right? No, no, it's not, actually. That's the difference. 
So what they do with uh, uh, Prisma is they actually grab your images, and here's the announcement I meant to link to it but did not. Um, it, they grab your images and they recreate them uh, instead of filtering them. So normally with a filter, it'll just apply something over the top of your image. With this, the right. AI analyzes the image and then recreates it from scratch. Uh, using whatever art style mm. that you choose. So it's not just an applied filter. It's actually a recreation of the image itself. There are some limitations, one-by-one uh, one ratios for photos right now. And the video, mm -hmm. I don't know yet what is available as far as video capabilities are concerned. But it is kind of cool. You could do a scanner darkly uh, type of thing. Yeah, that's right. With this pretty easily. And um, imagine... Um, you know, go in pencil line, do the old uh, 80s music video style thing with this and, and have, you know, traces mm -hmm. of Sting uh, dancing about or, or something <laughs> like that. Man, Scanner Darkly. It's been forever since I've heard about that. Um, you know, for me, though, I, uh, I still think about it as a filter. I understand what you're saying. It works differently. It's looking at, like, lines and composition and everything else. But... Uh, for me, the way that it's applied and used, it's just a very, very smart filter. Um, it's the kind of thing that um, I'd like to see. Well, d this is good because this is a very stylized, specialized case, but that's where this kind of technology would start because that's where people are going to recognize and be useful. But I see these kind of uh, very advanced algorithms uh, being perfect for things like uh, color correcting, uh, because there's so many things where, you know, people like grab LUTs and there's some people who throw a LUT on an entire timeline and call it a day. And sometimes that's good enough. Uh, and there's other people where, you know, you start with your uh, a LUT that gets you close and then you start to tweak each shot to make it work best for that LUT. But the I feel like the technology's there. There just isn't enough push in that market space for computers to actually start figuring out color uh, in a way that makes sense. So when you apply a LUT, it takes into account, uh, you know, is this a dark scene um, or is most of it dark? What's the subject? And making sure that the subject is properly exposed and all these other things. There's there's things like that that could be done in software um, that right now I feel like there aren't a whole lot of uh, – a lot of public um, interest in that area yet, and I feel like that's where kind of color correcting is going to go. Um, of course, I don't. The coloring is an art. I don't think it would ever go away, but I could definitely see in the future software starting to color for uh, potential filmmakers and things like that. So take a look at this really quick. Uh, this is um, a picture of my wife that has been run through Prisma, and you can see that it's done a very good uh, pencil line drawing of this. What I was able to do with this, which is very handy was take this image and then take it into illustrator and do line trace on it and from there i was able to create a vector out of this and laser this as a vector onto an object which i mean that's a very specific case but it is really interesting and, and kind of cool that i saved many steps i didn't have to go in and trace this with a pen or anything like that in order to create this image and i i dinked around with it just a little bit and tried a few other ones and it does get a little bit wacky here if you start looking closely at this but uh you know it, yeah. it does a good job and it's it's surprisingly it, it, decent you can tell that it's not just a filter because all those pencil filters try to cover up the fact that they don't know where a line starts and a line ends by just kind of putting a like a sketch kind of feel over the entire image just because it would look bad if it like doesn't know where an edge starts. But you're right. 
that totally detected this is a surface um and this is where to like maybe add a little bit of shading but like this is an edge this is a line i'm gonna draw on so it is really impressive in uh how it's figuring out how to do that you know maybe art is dead who knows <laughs> <laughs> let's not go that far but uh, i'm interested to see how the video turns out there are some examples on their website uh, i'll fix that link in the show notes uh it's prism-ai.com if you want to check that out guys uh next thing on the list here is actually devin put this in i completely missed this this is the camera <laughs> that i was dreaming of about two years ago when i purchased the e1z cam that i'm currently <laughs> shooting this show on this is a <laughs> prototype from panasonic that showed up at photokina and this little guy is basically a GH4 sensor scaled down to fit into a minuscule box that is basically Wi-Fi controlled or USB controlled. Uh, this is from newshooter.com, and they were able to take a look at the prototype. They had a few examples of gimbals there, and be sure to check the link out to see the video of that thing in progress. But Devin, first of all, what do you think of a tiny... Uh, camera like this is is dji and, and this other company that we just talked about they're producing stuff like mm -hmm. this already with similar sensors is, is this too little too late from panasonic uh maybe i mean i don't think that the e1 uh necessarily delivered a huge splash in the marketplace of lot tiny of, cameras with interchangeable lenses <laughs> there might have been a lot of complaints, uh, but knowing Panasonic and all the rock solid work that they've been doing with a G2 and a GH3 and all that, because I mean, we've never had overheating issues or like firmware issues or like, you know, you always turn the thing on and it works. It's a workhorse. And so applying that in a drone environment uh, definitely makes sense, as well as the compatibility with all their lenses. You know, it's just going to work, and and probably Olympus. Let's just assume that, like, yeah, your big guys like Panasonic and Olympus lenses would work out of the box without a problem on this guy. What I'd be interested to see is um, if they have kind of that amazing autofocus system they have on the GH4 on something like this. I mean, you could potentially start using a drone shot for. Um, some really crazy like medium shots or maybe even close-up shots if that autofocus system is in there without needing a focus puller and focusing gears and all that other stuff um i think it could really open up what you can do because that's part of what we don't have on drones right now in terms of ease of use i mean you get a big fat drone with uh you know 16 propellers and everything yeah you can afford to put on a focus puller motor and a zoom motor and all this other stuff and set up a second controller and have us you know a second guy run the camera uh, but in terms of creating a small package where one guy uh, could be doing zooming if it's a powered lens as well as focusing, uh, that's something that we don't have in a low end consumer drone. So without, a, you know, with the big drones, of course, and if you're flying reds and stuff, you don't care about this. But I think this could be really interesting depending on how well that control software works, um, you know, and things like lag and everything else being taken into account. Because we're talking about it's supposed to work with an iPad wirelessly. Of course, I'd hope to want to see it on Android, too. But I'm sure uh, knowing Panasonic, they seem to support Android OK. So I'm very excited for it. I think it could really be the answer for, uh, you know, wanting a drone where you could stick this guy on there. I don't see anything about a partnership, though, with any of the guys. DGI's got their own camera systems going, and, of course, GoPro's got their own camera systems going. So I'm not sure what you would throw it on, because I don't even think DGI, uh, besides, uh, what was it, the Phantom 2 or Phantom 3, even has an open system for putting your own stuff on. Yeah, I don't, it's not like the Mavic is going to have an open system. Well, the X5 and X, 
I think X3, both of those use their proprietary head with a micro four thirds right. mount. And uh, you're still limited, even with something like this, you'd be limited on lens selection uh, simply because right, of the weight. weight and balancing. And this is just a prototype from Panasonic. Uh, there's no word yet on if they're going to actually manufacture this. Uh, the E1 Z cam that I'm using right now, I can tell you that when it works, it works quite well. Uh, the camera is glitchy and the autofocus system isn't top notch, but uh, the US or the uh, HDMI output of this is very good. To, I would say phenomenal. The 4K internal recording on the E1 Z Cam sucks. It's it's awful. <laughs> it's real bad. Um, and even the 1080p internal recording isn't very good. Uh, external recording again, excellent. But that's the big disappointment for me. Plus the the camera just crashes all the time and does some other weird stuff. And you still to this day, I believe, cannot purchase batteries. I only have a couple extra because really yeah you can get batteries with the system uh but uh they're still back ordered and out of stock most days on the batteries uh from the company wow. which is after a and year it, and it, some it, change it's ridiculous you sure that it's not a like common battery type uh, it could be um they told me the, you just can't find custom. one yet? i you know it's custom to be fair <laughs> I stopped searching about uh, five months ago or four months ago, so it, it may <laughs> yeah. be that they've finally updated that, but uh, I stay a little bit on top of the forums for that camera and just throw in a complaint every once in a while when people are, are asking about buying right. one, uh, but uh, it hasn't popped up as a easy-to-find item, so it may be available now. It's still, don't, if you guys ever see <laughs> the E1Z cam out there, don't buy it. It's half-baked still. Uh, they haven't updated the firmware in in about three or four months and every time they do they break something that was previously working uh, lens support is an issue um, some of the olympus lenses that i've put on here have gone wacky with this and again internal recording image quality is not there it, i don't know what's wrong with it why it does that but it, it doesn't look very good so stay away from that camera as far as the panasonic goes though i would love to see i would have loved to seen this about two years ago uh you would have totally had me sold with an action mm -hmm. cam uh, in fact that's what sold me on the e1 is that it's an action cam size camera that takes regular lenses and speaking of which i, I almost forgot i threw i forgot to throw this in the show notes but it's something interesting that's coming down the pike and uh, I think I sent you a link to this, Devin, but then I forgot to put it in the show notes. Check out this guy right here. We were all about the camera um, from Yi, the Yi 4K or YI 4K action cam. Well, it turns out the, the good guys at Backbone, I was kind of haranguing them when that camera was first released to, to make a cage for it. And their cages for the GoPro system allow you to basically put C-mount lenses and so on on the on the camera and get uh, a little bit more variety out of it. Well, it looks like they're introducing one for the Yi 4K action cam. And this guy will set you back $99 if you want to do it yourself, or you can buy it pre-installed on the camera uh, for about $449. Uh, this cage just attaches basically to the front of the camera. And if you look around online, you can find some teardowns of the E1 camera itself, not too hard to tear apart. Devin, what do you think about adding a cage like this to your E4K well, action cam? I feel like it's more adding a lens system to the camera more than a cage. Because, I mean, the, the camera's pretty hardy, and throw a plastic cage on it, it'll, you know, kind of survive anything like the GoPros will. But 
being able to do all this C mounts and everything else. Um, I think it's great because while I've seen this for GoPro, I've never even considered it because the price has been so insane. Uh, it's like, hey, that $400 GoPro plus $300 for us to tear it apart and add this lens mount to it. Um, and so this kind of puts it in that price point where you can get a really great looking 4K camera uh, with all these options, Wi-Fi, everything else, um, a reliable support structure. But start throwing on some C-mount lenses, start throwing on some 16 millimeters, um, you know, F1.2s and things like that and get some shallow depth of field out of your action cam. Now you're looking at like an actual crash cam, one that you can put a lens mount on, get the shot you want. Um, it's really exciting simply because the price point, this isn't new, um, because I think this has been going on since the GoPro three. Uh, but at this price point, it's a totally different thing. And so that's why I'm excited for, it. I don't know if I'd pull the trigger on it yet, uh, but it definitely makes me consider it. Yeah. Backbone has been making the rib cage for the Go- GoPro line of cameras for at least three or four generations. And yeah, uh, you know, I'm with you when you have a $450, dollars action cam, it's like, uh, I don't know if I want to tear this apart and eliminate my ability to shoot really wide unless I buy a special adapter, uh, right. with the Yi 4k action cam, what is it? 249. I mean, you break that yeah. and tear it apart, not as expensive and sort of a cute little guy. I don't know why I said cute, but okay. <laughs> Next thing on the list, and this is actually something I'm kind of interested in, and I wanted to get your take on it. Mitch and I talked about it on the last episode, but Devin, we both know that the A6500 has hit the streets. Uh, this camera is now available for pre-order on BNH and should be shipping fairly soon. Uh, you've taken a look at the specs. You know this is an APS-C mm-hmm. sensor, 24 megapixel. You also have the option to, to slap a, a focal reducer on there, which would actually with the ultra from uh the why why is the name escaping meta or not meta bones yeah meta bones uh yeah i'm t- i don't know what i'm saying the adapter the <laughs> adapter you can actually get down to yep. greater than full frame what do you think about this camera um i think it's an exciting option because of its size um and the price you know the the, the price puts it up there where um It'll, it'll, I mean, we, we can be sure it'll be cheaper than a, a GH5 or other um, small cameras like that. Um, for me, I don't see anything. I'm, I'm hoping that the autofocus system is as amazing as they claim it is. I haven't, I haven't been able to see tests yet, and I haven't held one in my hand yet. Um, but for me, I'm kind of about um, these, these Sony cameras, especially when you throw on adapters and stuff like that, you could get some great stuff. You don't necessarily get autofocus. I know some people never run with autofocus and that's great for you guys. Uh, sometimes when you're a one guy like me and you're running around autofocus just makes sense. Um, now, like if you're shooting short films, like when we were shooting with the, um, something like, a, a the black magic, well, the black magic is a 2.5 K and the EF mount has no active, uh, electronics for lenses so there is no autofocus system besides black those black magic cameras don't autofocus worth anything uh but when i was um for a short time i was running around doing some behind the scenes with my gh3 and heck yeah i was using autofocus it was documentary filmmaking i'm throwing it everywhere i'm reaching around corners with the camera and i'm allowing the camera to get the focus and guess what it nails it 
um, if I have it on my shoulder and I'm able to physically operate the camera, then I'll take over for focus. But sometimes it being in that small package, it's it's worth so much that it's able to focus on its own because I'm going to put it in places where I can't operate the camera very well. And that's the advantage of having a small camera. So I'd like to see what that's like. But, you know, this looks like it'll be super stable. And you talk about using a focal reducer to get a full frame look off of uh, this sensor. I think for a lot of people, it'll be a win, especially after um, the people have been so excited with the rest of the Sony lineup. I imagine people are starting to really buy Sony lenses. Um, <laughs> and, well, I mean, I, I still, you know, the few times I've shot with an A7S and had overheating issues and stuff like that, I don't like to touch it. But other people, uh, they really love their uh, 6300s and everything else. It looks like Sony's really growing in this market. Um, and really exploding uh, thanks to that A7S initial, you know, impression with the low light capability. So I see this being very excited for people. There's not necessarily one or two things that I go, oh, this is awesome. I need to have this. Uh, but I think it's at least some people should, should consider if they're looking for a camera in this price point. I'm interested to see the touch focus in action uh, using the 5D Mark IV for the last month or so. Uh, I, I was really surprised that I fell in love with the touch focus system. Uh, it worked so well to be able to, to pull focus from section to section by simply tapping the screen. And on the touch screen uh, front, I was actually on a, a shoot about two weeks ago and uh, somebody grabbed my camera to shoot something. They're like, how do I focus this? And I reached over and tapped the screen and they're like, oh God, that's amazing. I'm like, yeah, you, you know, like it's so, so much easier than pulling focus. Now you don't have to worry about it anymore. And I'm obviously it doesn't yeah. eliminate focus pulling completely, but uh, being able to just tap and focus is, is a really handy deal, especially when you can set your time for pulling focus from one point to another another. Uh, in many cases, that's more than enough to get the shot that you want. Now, with this, you could get to full frame. And I suspect when we see the mm -hmm. A7S Mark III and the A7 line refresh, we'll see some of the features that are available in this camera, including the touchscreen capabilities, uh, possibly the scaling stuff. I've heard rumors that there's going to be a 15 megapixel sensor in the A7S Mark III, uh, and they'll be able to uh, scale down the same way that they're scaling with the new LSI uh, onboard chipset. As far as heating goes, uh, somebody sent me an email about this, and I wanted to bring it up because apparently I'm wrong. I've been wrong a couple of times on this, and I wanted to okay. correct myself. Uh, apparently, uh, chip uh, sensor heating hasn't been an issue for a few generations now. Uh, the heating issues are mostly in the processor uh, side of things from what I've come to understand. And I can't, I, I haven't been able to find a white paper on this that specifically says it's all in the uh, CPU side of things, but it sounds like that's more the case than not. And a lot of the heating issues that you get with the A6300 uh, from the users I've talked to are right on the back portion of the camera. And that spot is where the CPU's heatsink is located uh, for the camera itself. So uh, I, apparently sensor heating isn't as big of an issue as I remember it being not too many years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's correct or not, but I wanted to put that out there. Well, it's it, it, Well, I, I think the, the sensor 
definitely adds heat. I mean, I, I look, I, I'm not an engineer. I don't build these cameras. I don't know. But I, I feel like it's an understanding that, hey, if you want really good low light performance, um, you usually have to stack a, a heat sink or active cooling. I mean, there's a reason why the C300 has a fan. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's not necessarily for the processor because so many things like H.264 encoding and things like that are done on a pre-built chip level instead of like a computer processor sitting there crunching numbers. It's a processor that's built to do that one thing. Um because we know, yeah, you you know, uh, what was it, the hack for the old 5Ds where you would tear them apart and put a computer heat sink on the sensor to get better low light performance for doing uh, astrophotography and things like that? Um, so it, it's definitely, maybe it's not that like the sensor is overheating the camera, but the sensor definitely adds heat to the system. Hence why when you remove the heat, you get better low light performance. There's less noise in the image and the sensor can work better. So, uh, you could be right though. It could be the way that Sony's using their processor and maybe they're asking too much from their hardware for such a small package that it causes, uh, an overheating issue. The way I look at it either way it overheats and that hurts the reliability and that's why it's more sketchy for me to use it out on a shoot than something like my gh3 or gh4 where i could sit in a 110 degree sun all day and after five or six hours it still chugs away without a problem even when it's hot to, to touch because it's been baking in the sun so um th- that's something i look for in a camera is is like how rugged it is because i'm going to use it in wet situations i'm going to use it in dry and dusty situations so uh that's what i care about but you could be right it could be all processor and it just the processor's overheating and the camera's turning off because it's protecting because man if that processor fries uh there's no way that's going to get repaired for cheap so yeah and i did have overheating issues on the 5d mark three and the 5d mark two as well so it's not as though they're the only cameras and even the higher end cameras are affected uh my issue with the 5D Mark III was actually uh, shooting in the summer in Nebraska where it was 110 already, and then we were shooting for several hours at a time. The camera would overheat in about an hour, hour and a half of shooting, which is still, you know, all right, guys, time for a water break. Let's let the camera cool down. <laughs> so not horrible. Uh, next camera on the list here, and this one is another Sony offering. This is the RX100 Mark IV. Uh, Mark V, excuse me, and this guy has pretty much everything that the A6300 had on a 20 megapixel one inch sensor, uh, good zoom range, super pocketable, very tiny. What do you think about this guy? You want this as your next uh, G cam, C cam? Uh, <laughs> how many tiers down well, do we I, go? How would, how would you compare this to your LX100? Because the only thing I see that really makes me excited is the fact that it claims that it does full HD video up to 960 frames. That's kind of insane. Yeah, the, right? the high frame rates uh, for the, the Sony cameras, uh, they get a little sketchy at those extreme high frame rates. Not the image, bit rate. Yeah, the image quality is not that amazing. 120 frames per second is good. Uh, the 960, uh, many people have been very disappointed <laughs> Uh, with that in particular well understandably so i think people demand way too much Uh, well first off um that's why like i like that panasonic doesn't push the high speed thing because i mean really guys if you want 960 frames to be broadcast uh, you know good or uh you know is going to fit in great with your a cam for your you know whatever film you're shooting 
it's a crazy amount of bit rate, man. You you need like tons of RAM, and then that RAM needs to offload to a hard drive. Like, there's a reason why the high speed cameras are super expensive, and there's a reason why they take a long time to do their job. Um, so 960 is like a really cool like. I'm hanging out with my friends and we're like doing something funny. Uh, but in terms of actually using it for production work, I never expect it to be usable because the bit rate just can't hold up and there's not enough Ram in these little cheap cameras. So, um, either way, I mean, that's what I'm kind of hoping for, for a GH five is that if it has that better IO that we could maybe get up to 120 um, or like 160 with really great image quality uh, because we all know 96 uh, frames per second was kind of disappointing because the bitrate wasn't there. So I'd like to see something where they can push the bitrate up to 200 or 300 megabit per second to be able to handle a higher quality with these high speeds. Uh, so, I mean, like that's a cool feature, but for me, that's not a selling point. Uh, the lens is really cool. Uh, for sure, it's definitely something that is super usable walk around kind of thing 4k it's got log which is interesting in such a small camera i'm not complaining i'm happy <laughs> that it has log because it, it works as a b cam if you want to intercut like that's great uh i'd like to see more people just throw log into their cameras um even though people may not use it correctly in my opinion uh i like to see that it's in there just as an option for uh, other people but yeah it's exciting. I mean, would you use this to replace your LX100? Probably not. Um, you used my LX100 alongside me at NAB. The image stabilization is very good. The camera Fantastic. is good. It, it does a beautiful job. Uh, the 4K footage out of it looks very nice. The menu and interface system are a little clunky, and you do have to spend some time setting the camera up specifically to shoot 4K footage. But dang, is it a good camera. And currently, you can find the LX100 on the used market for four hundred and fifty dollars uh which is a -hmm. freaking bargain Uh, the micro four thirds sensor in there although the lens element doesn't utilize the entire sensor it still uses a bigger region than this one inch sensor from sony and you get a better shallow depth of field out of that Uh, the macro features on that camera are excellent it's the trade-off though is, is it's much bulkier uh, than the RX line of cameras. The RX100 series has been known for being about three quarters of an inch to an inch thick and being able to slide into your pocket. You held the LX100. That's not going in your pocket. It's not a pocketable <laughs> camera. I mean, it's it's small. It's it's not the biggest thing in the world, but it's not something that you could just shove in your pocket unless you're wearing cargo pants. Uh, <laughs> That said, it's a beautiful camera, and I hope to goodness that uh, Panasonic updates the LX line because the LX100 is a phenomenal uh, little camera, and I would buy buy it in a heartbeat if they made a newer version of that with uh, some upgrades, maybe low-light performance and uh, an audio jack of some kind. Although I have considered drilling a hole into my LX100 and uh, installing an audio jack. Well, it's... The camera is so affordable that you can almost consider drilling a hole in it. You know, it's a little different if it's a like, you know, your uh, 1DC or something like that, uh, super expensive camera. It's harder to justify, hey, let me crack it open. And like, that's what impressed me when people were cracking open their 5Ds to do um, uh, like remove the mosaic filter. They'd like scratch that off or whatever and all that kind of stuff. That impressed me because I'm like, that's a lot of money that you're playing with there. Um, I don't have that kind of money. But 
Uh, something like a camera for four hundred fifty dollars puts it kind of in that like GoPro action cam territory. So yeah, I, that's actually I think totally exactly make- what I use mine for. It's it's a pocketable B cam, and I carry it around more than I carry around a GoPro or even my E four K action cam because guess what? I have all the controls of a real camera uh, in something that's slightly bigger than a GoPro, but in a manner with image stabilization and all the other you know little features that make it. F- freaking amazing it's a great little camera to shoot with and i know exactly how my footage is going to turn out i know it's going to be good i'm not guessing with the gopro where i'm shooting blind and i'm not uh, compromising with my focal lengths uh because i have an option of a zoom that's you know what i think it's uh 24 to 75 equivalent zoom range which is very useful especially yeah you don't always want freaking ultra wide on everything don't get me wrong i love wide <laughs> but ultra wide not always for me uh i hope they create a, a update to the lx100 so uh, that's my dream camera devin <laughs> this camera probably not for you for a thousand dollars probably not no okay Next thing on the list here, and this is uh, something sort of interesting, sort of not. We, we talked about some of the Transcend cards that uh, were coming out that have 280 to 300 megabit per second uh, read-write speeds. Uh, SanDisk has also introduced these. These are the UHS-2 variety. And before you go out and start buying one of these, remember, guys, uh, not a lot of cameras are compatible with UHS-2. Uh, most of them are UHS-1. And you can use these cards inside of those cameras but you're basically wasting the extra channels of speed and this would basically uh, relegate you back to the 90 or so megasecond you get out of the extreme pro edition cards now Devin, this kind of coincides with some of the new cameras what is the key micro sd feature excuse me sd feature that we see in the rumors for the gh5 and the olympus omd one mark ii well, I, it looks like it's all rumors at this point because no one's seen it yet, but it's feeling like they're going to have dual SSD slots. Um, and that that could definitely be interesting because it could mean that they could have um, uh, they could be working on slots that allow for these higher bit rates. I mean, that's that's what we're all looking for. Right. Is um, so it is actually get, it is confirmed that the confirmed. Olympus OMD one Mark two uh, will have a UHS dash two uh, slot on the card, and their four K bit rate is going to be about two hundred and thirty, I think two hundred and fifty meg, something like that. So uh, you're going to have to have uh, these speed yeah. cards in order to accomplish that. Well, this card here, because I always get upset that they do this, uh, I'm pretty sure it put the read speed on the front of the card where it says 300 megabytes a second. Its write speed is 260 megabytes a second. So, But you're right, just squeaking by there um, in terms of uh, uh, being able to use this card with a system that fast. I mean, man, it's getting so fast. Do you even need, like, buffers anymore for uh, taking raw photos? I feel like, you know, resolution hasn't increased at the same rate that uh, the memory speed has, where now I wonder, like, do you even need that much buffer um, to sit here and take, like, you know, 15, 18 uh, FPS on your uh, raw images? Uh, yeah, you definitely need a buffer. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> the, the RAM speeds versus write speeds to these cards are, are uh, they're way different. Uh, you're you're getting transfer rates in the gigs to the the buffers on your card, whereas to your memory card, you know, you're even at, I think the top of the line for UHS standard. I had it in the previous show notes. I don't have it with me, but I want to say it's like 400 or uh, 500 meg write speeds, which is still far slower uh, than what you get out of, of RAM access. So uh, you will be able to write faster and clear that buffer out faster, uh, but uh, you're still going to see a lot of, uh, of big buffers for uh, raw shooting especially. And JPEG, I mean, now we're seeing some of these cameras like that uh, RX100 we just mentioned. That has mm-hmm. a uh, frame rate for burst of 24 frames per second, I believe, which, wow, you know, that's that's outrageous now you can only do that for six seconds because guess what your buffer is going to fill up uh but uh right you know in in the near term we're going to start seeing ram prices drop and drop and drop especially in these compact systems and now uh, i think there was an announcement from intel that they were going to start putting on board a memory uh like stacked in an hmb style setup on top of their chips uh for server applications but imagine mm-hmm. seeing that in an arm processor where it's stacked on you know four or five gig <laughs> worth of space that it can buffer to and then kick out that's that's very exciting especially in yeah. the camera market and and it's exciting to see how uh, affordable these cards are because every time a new card class card speed comes out, you know, I I my uh uh my wallet hurts because you know, you, you look at uh, the Ursa Mini with its um CFast 2.0 cards and the price on that and it's like, "Oh my gosh." Uh now obviously those are moving way faster than these new S uh SD cards are. But I love that these SD cards are still affordable. I mean, for SanDisk, which people consider a premier brand to be $100 uh, for a 64 gig, isn't that bad? Uh, I mean, you look and still um, SSDs, I mean, like uh, 100 bucks will get you like a, you know, a 128 gigabyte SSD, maybe a 256 if you buy a really crappy one. But still, like these prices are like kind of close to what an SSD is. Um, even though you're not getting SSD speeds. Uh, so I'm just excited to see that, uh, hey, when I probably will pull the trigger on something like a GH5, um, that the memory cards uh, to go with it aren't going to kill me. Uh, and that's happy to see. Because unlike some people who like ran in on that Ursa Mini, didn't exactly look at how much a CFast 2.0 was going to cost them and was like, crap, this is not a cheap camera. So... Oh yeah, both uh, CFast and the XQD standards are very spendy right now. And, yeah, uh, you know, with uh, cameras coming out with UHS dash two support, uh, that could stave off the requirement for <laughs> these more expensive cards for a little while longer. And the tech that goes into those cards is such that uh, they can still use the same uh, memory and chipset. It's just accessing it with a multi. Uh, excuse me, two streams or three streams or four streams, depending on how they set it up. So you can get to the memory uh, faster and access mm-hmm. different sections. I'm happy that they're doing that. I'm with you. I I have a pile of cards here that are just, uh, you know, going to be paperweights in, in the next few years as cameras update. Use them in your, 
audio recorder. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I do with my old cards. It's a little silly. Like in my Zoom H or H1, I have a micro SD card in there that I pulled out of a phone that I didn't need anymore. It's a 32 gig card. You know, you could record yeah. for years on that like thing. Like hours. Yeah, it never really record enough <laughs> audio to worry about that. I believe the, car, uh, the recorder was originally issued with a two gig card that you'd probably unlikely to fill up any time in the near term. It's it's yeah. getting ridiculous. Memory, I'm glad it's getting cheaper, but at the same time, every time we need a faster write speed for the camera, we have to upgrade yet again. That's pretty much it for the show notes, Devin. I'm looking through. Anything yeah. else you want to talk about before we get out of here? Um, other than there's there's a rumor that um, the GH5 will have a full-size HDMI port. You think so? That's just a rumor, but that's pretty cool. You think that's going to... I'm happy to hear that. Where are they going to put it? You know, uh, the the question is, and, and this is actually two rumors for the GH5, it's supposed to have a dual memory card slot, and it's supposed to have a full HDMI port. Now, I've got my GH4 here, and Devin and I were talking about this pre-show, but look at the, you know, look at the spacing here. You have enough spacing if you put a full-size HDMI port on there. If you got rid of the AV port right here, mm-hmm. you could fit it there. Which uses? Which yeah, which no one. Oh, I mean, somebody might use it. There's maybe I'm a sure, reason. I'm sure there's. There's going to be like five angry commenters out there who are like, no, I I need the AV to go with this and that, and like it's the only way it works. Um, and I suppose if realistically, you, if you increase the grip size a little bit on here, you could uh, feasibly fit two uh, memory cards in there. I w- that's so much for such a small camera, man. That's like the dual memory card thing is hard for me to believe because that's such a small camera. It seems you, like that's the, uh, the feature that they've been adding in a lot of new cameras is like, oh, guess what? This one has two memory card slots. Now you can, you know, back up to another extra card or you can oh, yeah. write across the two I'm cards. I'm all about that. I'm, I'm all about being able to write across cards. Um, that especially becomes important in systems where it's really expensive media. So your media may be a little small, like uh, the Ursa Mini or the FS5 or something like that. We're using those expensive cards. But uh, in this case, I would just love it for a backup. Um, like I was talking with DJ earlier, I think um, one of my Sandus cards may have gone bad. I haven't exactly figured it out yet, but I think one of my cards keeps writing bad files. Uh, there could be bad sectors on it or something like that. Ooh. So uh, backup options are always good, especially if you have a very expensive shoot coming up and you don't have an option for retakes. Um, so I'm all about it. Uh, I just I'll be really impressed if I see dual slots in something like a GH5 because I know they aren't going to radically change the size of the GH5. And according to the photos or the model they had at Photokino, which is like I, I guess I, who knows if it's an actually working model or if it's just a piece of plastic that's supposed to represent it, it pretty much looks identical size and dimensions as the GH3 and GH4. So. That being the case, I'll be really impressed to see a second SD slot in it. Um, as for other stuff, um, it seems like uh, it's going to have a custom sensor. I don't know exactly what that entails, if it's a custom-built sensor for it. I think we're pretty sure it's going to be built off the same one that's inside of the uh, the GX85, uh, though the custom part, I don't know how it would be more custom. Are you sure you the GX85? Because possibly... isn't the, GX, the GX85 is still the 16-megapixel sensor. The GX8 is oh. the 20-megapixel yeah. sensor. That we're seeing in yeah, like the Olympus cameras and so on. 
Well, you were talking about you think that they were doing uh, the uh, the weird multi aspect ratio sensor like they had in the GH two. You think that maybe they might put something like that in the GH five? Yeah, there's one of the rumors, and uh, I don't know if this is substantiated or not, but uh, that there was the possibility that they were developing maybe an APS-C size sensor that they were going to stick in there and then crop uh, into that sensor and uh, not utilize the outer areas. That would save Panasonic money in production because if the sensors had bad areas, they were able to you know, re-bend them and get them at a cheaper price. And it would give them the option to uh, use some of the newer technology like the... Uh, the what do they call that stuff where they change the tracing of the electrical wiring from the front to the back of the sensor in order to provide better light uh, there's a name for it but uh, uh back back illuminated something so some of yeah. that tech is is in some of the APS-C sensors that Sony makes and I know they say there's going to be a new sensor in here and, and Panasonic's working on it but uh, Panasonic doesn't manufacture a lot of sensors. Uh, I would still Not think anymore. even yeah. with this uh, camera, you know, with this new GH5, that it's probably something in co- collaboration uh, with Sony. And that's the touting factor for a lot of the cameras that have micro four thirds mounts, especially in like the DJI and this E1 Z cam. They literally give you the part number for the 60 megapixel sensor that's in there from Sony's stock lineup and tell you, yes, we're using blah, blah, blah sensor straight from the GH4. So, you know, maybe they, they set up some sort of proprietary deal where the new sensor belongs only to, you know, Panasonic for X number of years. Uh, same thing with the, <laughs> we've heard the rumors of the LS chip being in the Olympus uh, camera as well as the uh, GX85, I believe, but that they've curtailed the uh, ability for it to perform uh, uh, HDMI 4K output and some of the other things uh, as part of their licensing agreement for being allowed that technology. But then the chip itself has the capability of driving all five axis image stabilization controls uh, from a single chip and uh, uses the same uh, algorithm for image stabilization as uh, some of the more advanced cameras. So yeah, uh, those things. Uh, maybe I'm <laughs> maybe I'm dreaming here, but uh, I would love to see an APS-C size sensor in the GH4 and or GH5 and have it cropped down. Uh, that especially if you want to mm-hmm. go four three, uh, sixteen by nine, and so on. Then maybe we could get away from that, this freaking two point three crop and go to a two crop. I would I would say it's it's. It could be likely just because uh, seeing how much uh, they push big updates like anamorphic modes inside of the GH4. I think they really want to see this turn into more of a film camera uh, or a camera used in filmmaking because we see it in documentary. People love it. It's super sharp. Uh, but more or less, people still say it has that video look. By the way, the comments are yelling at us that it's backside illuminated. Thank you. Is, uh, what you're talking DSI. about, the sensor technology. My brain was yeah. uh, not working this morning. <laughs> but the um, uh, And also that includes one of the rumors saying that it's supposed to potentially the GH5 will have film filters like Fuji and other things. And I think it could be Panasonic trying to push their camera being used in more cinematic applications. Uh because I, I think that's something that I see them push, and unfortunately, I don't see anyone use. Um, I mean, for anyone that is curious about taking something that maybe looks a little video-y, like a Panasonic camera, 
to get a more filmic image, uh, you should consider things like the Hollywood Black Magic filter or the Digicon filters. Uh, they tend to be a combo filter that is both um, a smoked filter, so it kind of brings up your shadows a little bit, uh, as well as then also spreading out your uh, highlights and spreading out some of that energy. So you lose a little bit of sharpness, which is kind of a good thing for that filmic look. You can see a few reviews online of people using these filters, but it can kind of take something video-y like a Panasonic camera and give it kind of smoother roll-offs and kind of give more of a film look out of that camera. So uh, that might be something interesting for some of you guys to check out too. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted (laughs) by the comment section. Um, uh, One of the things I got to stop doing, and I I love my clicky keyboard, but every time I type (laughs) and respond to you, it's like... All, all these mechanical keyboard are just clicking through. You and that IBM, you've got that. <laughs> I've, I've been rocking uh, multiple IBMs for years. I love uh, the... You live and die by that keyboard, I, man. Anytime I find them in a pawn shop or uh, uh, any kind of junk store, I buy them and refurbish them because they're just such amazing keyboards. That, and they're ugly as hell, too, mm-hmm. uh, but whatever. Uh, anyway... Um, one of the last things I wanted to mention, and this is actually came up in the in the chat room. I, I've got the GX8, and I've been playing around with that for a while. I like the camera a lot; it's it's nice. But I've been thinking about switching over to the GX85, and the GX85 is missing the audio jack. But the the 2.5 millimeter jack on here is sort of uh, useless anyway. But it's small; it's cute. It has most of the new features that we're seeing uh, coming out of uh, Panasonic, like uh, the G85, which uh, is the big brother to the GX85. And the GX8, I don't know where it sits in the lineup these days because it does have the 20 megapixel sensor. And I like the images that I'm getting out of this guy. I just, I want the video image stabilization in body, uh, for one. And I kind of want it as like a, almost as a replacement for my LX100 because I can take a few of these tiny lenses like the uh, 15 millimeter or the uh, 45 millimeter or even the 25 millimeter and pile those into a bag and run around with them and have uh, great little primes. Uh, That's what I've been using this for, but it's not as small as you would think compared to the GH4. You're not really saving much in the way of size. Mm -hmm. Now, Devin... Well, the GH4 is already tiny. (laughs) Yeah, the the GH4 is already tiny, but this is tinier. You've seen the uh, hipster-esque Olympus Pin F, right? (laughs) Yes, I have. And you've seen the GX85. Do you Mm -hmm. think I should go for style over function or function over style? I think in your case, you own so many cameras, you can afford to go (laughs) style over function. You know, it's a be- the the pen is a beautiful looking camera and I think you would love having it because I don't think that there's any real downsides to it, even though it may not be the strongest performer in any one of those areas, I think you'd still be happy to own it. It doesn't so, uh, <laughs> the Pen F doesn't shoot four K video though, and uh, a lot of people I've talked to say yeah, so that what? the uh the controls are pretty hokey and there's a lot of weird stuff to try and get your get your head around when you're in the menu system. Yeah. It's an Olympus. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor Olympus. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm probably going to go with the GX85. Um, I've been waiting. I've, I've got this one on Craigslist right now, and two people have shown up. Hopefully, I'll I'll chuck it out the door at a, a profit and maybe pick up the GX85 as a replacement that's a little bit smaller for this. Uh, sure. Am I going to get rid of my LX100? Probably not. Am I going to keep like this? It too much. Yeah, I like it too much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I spent the money on that cheesy wooden handle grip. And, you know, it's also the camera, you know, I hand over to my wife if she needs to go take pictures of something. It, it does such a good job. Uh, mm. I kind of want the GX85, though. But I'm also, like you said, I have enough cameras. I need to I need to curtail my purchases. Uh, do I need two mm-hmm. or three micro four-thirds cameras laying around the house? No, I don't. So no, uh, don't. Uh, I, I need to get rid of this before I purchase another one or just be happy with this and, and lust after the image stabilization that everybody else is enjoying in the updated models. <sighs> On that note, Devin, anything else before we get yes. out of here? Uh, keep shooting. Keep shooting. <laughs> Good <laughs> advice. Um, oh, never mind. I, I've got these mini lights that I'm really interested in uh from aperture but uh we'll talk about that on another show if you guys haven't seen them aperture released some really cute little uh business card sized lights that are, are are pretty neat um if you're into small lights and a lot of them have magnetic filters and so on now so uh some good offering there in the tiny light category uh you can find me on itunes soundcloud and anywhere podcasts are distributed devin where can people find you uh you just hit me up on twitter at DevoCut. i'd love to talk to you and thanks for listening. Thanks for watching, guys. This has been a kind of weird ending for this episode as we taper it off is. and just meander about. But thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>